Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Primary Healthcare Development's Pre-Reg Pharmacy Podcast. This week, I'm still Sana Khan, but I speak to Mohammed Imran, who is a clinical tutor at the University of Bradford, a primary care pharmacist and a trainee ACP, that's an advanced clinical practitioner. We talk about the gastrointestinal and the respiratory systems, how to navigate the BNF chapters, the treatment summaries, NICE guidelines, and there's loads of advice and actually bits of homework throughout the conversation for you guys. So good luck if you do it. You're going to learn so much from this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Mohammed Imran. Thank you for coming today. We are so lucky to have you. You're all right. I'm fine. Thank you so much, Sana. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, we have heard a lot about your background, but something that's special about your background is that you have experience in GP practice. So what's your background otherwise in your pharmacy career, Imran? Oh, gosh. Well, my pharmacy career actually spans quite long, uh, pretty much 10 years to the day, actually. Um, so, yeah, I started my pharmacy degree actually in 2010. And during that week, uh, when I actually became, joined the pharmacy cohort in 2010 at the University of Bradford, I actually secured a part-time role working in a local community pharmacy. So that was quite interesting. I was doing a couple of, couple of days a week uh, in the evenings. Uh, so that was predominantly my experience prior to actually graduating, um, as well as my pre-reg. I was fortunate enough to do the sandwich course, which is quite unique to Bradford. I think um, Atif mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but I'll just reiterate for anybody that's not heard about that. Thank it's you. basically when you do your pre-reg uh, intercalated within your degree. So as opposed to doing your degree for four years, graduating, moving on and doing your pre-reg. With Bradford, what you can choose to do is, so you've got the option to do that, or you can choose to do the sandwich course, which I chose to do. So you do your pre-reg after about two and a half years of study. You come back, you do the last year and a half of study, and then you do another six months. It gives you the opportunity to potentially select between two different sectors. Uh, what I personally chose to do, however, I chose to stick to community on both, uh, both settings. So when I mentioned earlier, I got a job when I um, got into pharmacy. So I, choose, I chose to use my first placement there. And my second placement, I chose, well, I've seen what an independent pharmacy is like. So let's see what, what the corporate world, I guess, is more like. And I chose to move on to that. Interesting. So yeah, that was quite a good experience. And then since then, and qualifying as a pharmacist, uh, I kind of did what everybody does. does and I uh, joined the army of locum pharmacists. <laughs> <laughs> I did <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the vast majority of people actually do do that. It just yeah. it gives you a chance to help you find your feet as well. Um, mm -hmm. So you can take off a couple of days a week. The pays, I think, was a little bit better as well. So I it just, heard. yeah, so it all just kind of settled in together, to be honest with you. Um, after I did that for a couple of months, I tend to just settle down in one store and I became a uh, independent um, branch manager. Uh, I love that role. I did that for a couple of years. It really gave me all the skills, um, all the business skills in particular, actually required to run a successful pharmacy business and what really drives business forward in that regard. Um, and then from then, I really just wanted to broaden my horizon and I chose to uh, seek employment with another uh, healthcare organization and I became the superintendent for mm -hmm. Simple Online Pharmacy. Um, and it, it's, it's a really big independent online international in fact uh private pharmacy wow. and i was the superintendent for that so um i think atif gave you a quote a couple of weeks ago so i'll give you guys another quote um <laughs> so this one's from spider as opposed to thor and <laughs> I uncle, like this theme. <laughs> yeah uncle, uncle ben said uh with great power comes great responsibility so whilst i was a superintendent i actually i realized the importance of having protocols in place for everything yeah for preventing errors but we actually have protocols in place for when errors do actually happen mm. um now i know pre-regers and other people generally when they come into a new role they kind of just sign sign everything and they might not really read everything properly but it is quite important As the first time you're reading protocols that you do read them in some detail because it'll give you a lot of tips to do as well for example there'll be protocols and there'll be SOPs for looking at overage of CD counts or what to do if there's a discrepancy with CD counts which can be quite important at times mm. now that was uh, that was when I decided to become a superintendent and since then actually I thought I want to broaden my career my sphere of expertise even more so so I thought 
let's jump into general practice. So I've been in general practice for a while now. And since I've been here, I've uh, I've became an IP and I'm currently walking to, uh, working towards my uh, advanced clinical practitioner course. Um, now, at the moment, my work predominantly involves medicine management work and long-term condition reviews, of course, because of COVID, unfortunately, we can't really do many reviews, but some things that we can do, which hopefully will be beneficial to you, your listeners today, is the fact that asthma reviews, we can typically do these over the phone as well, uh, which can be quite beneficial to patients. And we've had really good feedback because often this was something that was missed. Um, and for the pre-regs that are working within general practice, they'll know we have something uh, called a recall in place usually, which is basically a reminder. And what used to happen with asthmatic patients was if, if their control was okay, or if they thought that their control was okay, they wouldn't actually come in for their reviews, regardless of how many, how many times they were using slabber, because right. they, their slabber inhalers, because they weren't really sure um, what good control of asthma actually looked like. Okay. Um, so when you eventually, because people just think generally, actually, I'm okay. I don't really need my review. So yeah. I'll just I'll just leave that part and I'll just keep going on with my inhalers and the general practice. Sometimes we keep prescribing people inhalers, assuming that they're getting on OK with it. But when you get the opportunity and you say to somebody, instead of having to come into the general practice, we'll just do the review over the phone. There are a lot more coming to that because they don't actually physically have to come anywhere. Potentially, they can take a 15, 20 minute break during work. And when you talk to patients and they say, well, I'm using my my inhaler technique is great. Um, my asthma is very well controlled and I'm saying, right, okay then. So we'll have a look and see how many blue inhalers have been prescribed over the year. And you'll check and they've had 12 blue inhalers. Yeah. So that's your typical sabers and they say, well, it's good control because I can use my blue inhaler and my asthma goes away. And then you explain <laughs> yeah. to them, well, actually, yeah. that's not good control and good, and it's really unfortunate that sometimes it's actually us as healthcare professionals, our fault, I would say, that we don't actually tell them what good control is and how you define good control of some disease states, specifically asthma, which can become quite serious quite quickly. But just coming back to your question um, in regards to my pharmacy career, so my career predominantly at the moment involves medicines management work, which is looking at acute requests, looking at discharge letters, uh, doing long-term condition reviews, as well as audits, just ensuring that uh, everything we're doing is the best possible way that we can be doing it, um, and as well as long-term medication reviews too. This is alongside my actual other role of working at the University of Bradford as a clinical teacher, where I work uh, most weeks during the semester coming up, which is uh, which is evolving and changing uh, constantly, and especially mm -hmm. with COVID going on. But I'm looking forward to it. That's so interesting. You have so many cool roles, especially the GP practice area, where I have little to no knowledge of it. The fact that you're involved in discharge as is really interesting to me because I know it's something that's quite... Yeah, it is quite just messy <laughs> at the moment. Um, so it's something that I've been really interested in since I was a pre-reg, so I'm excited to hear more about that in the future. So as you're aware, this week we're talking about GI and respiratory systems. We'll start with the GI system, the gastro system. Do you think that there are any areas of that system chapter in the BNF and the related treatment summaries and guidelines that you'd recommend our listeners to definitely focus on for the exam? It's not so huge, but... Right here. Well, that is something that you mentioned. It's not so huge, but I just want to mention that GI, the GI system, the gastrointestinal system, is one of five medium-weighted topics for the exam. And medium-weighted topics typically cover between 25 to 35% of the exam. So therefore, if we just say sensible approximations, 5 to 7% of questions on the upcoming, on your pre-reg exam will be about the GI system. So it's, even though I know it's a small chapter, it's not a chapter that should be skimmed over or looked over at just very, very briefly. It's something really, really important. And you will definitely want to learn what's beneficial for you first in this chapter, because if you're in community, uh, primary care, or even hospital, to be fair with you, what's mm. really important in this chapter is the fact that, you know, we cover things like diarrhea, constipation, mm. um, acute dyspepsia, uh, stomach cramps. Now, these are, the, these are the things that are going to be quick wins for you, in a sense. So if you're in community pharmacy and somebody comes in, uh, with somebody's going to come in, for example, in community pharmacy, and they're going to complain of something like constipation. Yeah. You'll need to be aware of the different medications used to treat constipation over the counter, because we've got a whole genre, haven't we? We've got yes. from stimulant laxatives to 
fecal softeners to osmotic laxatives. You want to be able to recall how each of these works. Now, a big clue, to be fair with you, is in the names. Because if we say osmotic laxatives, well, we've all known about osmosis since A-levels yes. and possibly even GCSEs. I believe currently yes. kids are probably learning it in primary school. Probably, now in the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so you really need to get to grips with how these things work. So once you know how things work, you can actually be aware of the contraindications as well. So if you just think of osmotic laxatives as an example, well, we know osmotic laxatives, they pull water out and therefore they work via, they're working via osmosis to help make the stools softer. Um, so they are used in constipation. Now, when would we not want to use an osmotic laxative? Well, we would definitely not want to use it if we're suspecting fecal compaction, mm -hmm. because if there's a compaction there and we're using an osmotic laxative, then we can lead to a buildup. And that's when you guys, when you read about uh, lactulose and you see toxic megacolon, that's the reason why you don't want to use it when there's already some impaction there. So that's something I would say in regards to this chapter, the things you definitely want to focus on uh, now early on in your pre-reg is things that are going to give you quick wins, your constipation, your diarrhea, your acute dyspepsia. These are the mm. things that people might walk in with on your community pharmacy. Potentially some patients could even go into hospital. You never know with these kind of symptoms when yeah. things are really bad with constipation and you're really, really struggling. You potentially, you know, you could have a bleed that could be quite serious. Mm. You could end up in, uh, in hospital as well. So these are things that are gonna give you quick wins. Now, all the things that are covered within this chapter, um, such as uh, Crohn's disease, uh, so obviously the irritable bowel diseases. Mm. Now that's something you want to have an acute awareness of at the moment, but coming more towards your exam, you're going to want to know more, a lot more in regards to the uh, the medications that can be used to uh, can be used to control these syndrome uh, these diseases, as well as their side effects and their monitoring. For now, I would say a quick win would be um, in regards to knowing the lifestyle modifications that patients can can make, just to help them cope with their lives daily. Because we know with IBS and IBD, obviously it can be quite debilitating themselves. So hopefully that provides a good summary of the chapter and different things to look out for, uh, specifically not only for the exam uh, that was uh, that you mentioned, but also mm -hmm. just to help give you quick wins throughout your pre-reg year. That is brilliant advice, especially the quick wins thing, because we know that it feels like there's ages for the exam, but look, we're already, what, nearly three months into our pre-reg uh, year. So Exactly. These, Time flies, doesn't it? Especially absolutely. when you're especially when you're working full-time. I mean, I had lots, I've obviously had plenty of part-time roles uh, prior to pre-reg, but pre-reg was my first full-time job. And I felt like time just absolutely flew. It's before you know it, it's your 13 week review and then yeah. you're half a year's gone. And if you're one of the people that unfortunately hasn't started revision, you always think to yourself, oh gosh, it's when you tend to start panicking. So anybody actually listening to the podcast today, I'd say you guys are probably already ahead in that regard, which yes. is always good. Yes, that's brilliant. So well done if you're listening to this. How would you incorporate the content from this chapter, the GI chapter, into your practice in GP surgeries, which is something I'm quite interested in as well? Right, guys. Now, what you want to be aware of in regards to this question, I'd say is quite similar to the previous one. You want to know what's common is common. So from, question, from the first question, you want to know about constipation. You want to know about your diarrheas. Mm -hmm. But what patients might actually present with um, is other abdominal symptoms. They might think, oh, I've just got stomach cramping. But at the end of the day, if it's a relatively young female, you want to probably ask about sexual history as well. Because mm -hmm. if it's, you know, within about six to six weeks or so of uh, unprotected sexual intercourse, even though a patient might have actually had... Um, use the morning after pill or any or something along them lines or used a uh, copper iud there's still a risk of ectopic pregnancy so these are the factors that we'd like to think about especially if the pain is lower down and if it's in the if it's in the lower uh, rift area which is the right iliac fossa or the left iliac fossa but these are things more i suppose inclined towards uh, advanced practice as opposed to your exam but for your exam things that you want to know in terms of 
uh, this chapter, I would say definitely DMARDs because DMARDs are mentioned within this chapter. It's the first mm. chapter of the BNF. They are mentioned and we've got some high risk medications. So we've got methotrexate in there. You want to know about loads. You want to know about monitoring. You want to know about other things that can go wrong with these medications. So how can you tell if somebody's having toxicity? So if you don't know that already, that's a little bit of homework from uh, from me to you. But one thing that we do do, I suppose, in general practice is we ensure that we've got a shared care protocol in place for these DMARDs. We ensure that the monitoring usually once we take over it, that is done within a reasonable time frame. And mm. within just the GPHC exam in general, uh, monitoring seems to become a more common thing that's asked about. And it's not too difficult to learn. And it's not too difficult to memorize. So I hope that's something that we can pick up on from this specific question. That's perfect. The beautiful thing about having people like Imran on is he not only gives you tips on how to smash the exam, but he's he's given such a nice insight into all the different sectors of pharmacy in the future. So I know that from being a pre-reg myself, I remember feeling not hopeless, but really worried about the future after after passing the pre-reg exam because we're so focused on that. And then we just forget that life after pre-reg does exist. So the fact that we've got Imran on telling us all about these different interventions that we can be involved in, I hope it raises your morale the way it's raising mine. And I have been qualified for three years. So thank you for that, Imran. Oh, no problem. And similar to the previous question a little bit, how do you recommend our listeners to use both the BNF and NICE guidelines on topics like inflammatory bowel disease and dyspepsia and stuff? Because I know the chapter is quite short in the BNF, but when you look in the guidelines, they're quite lengthy and sort of dense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of uh, looking at the BNF now, the BNF, of course, is, is a reference guide. Now, it's shortened, summarized versions of NICE guidelines mm. to some extent. But the true detail that you get, especially within dyspepsia, for example. So let's just play on dyspepsia first. Now, this is something where we use a variety of medications from simple antacids. So that's your Gaviscon, your Malox, to PPIs, to H2 antagonists. At the moment, we're probably not using H2 antagonists. If you work in community farms here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Or even hospital, to be fair with you. Yeah. And definitely general practice, because the amount of requests that we get, because ranitidine's out of stock, out of stock, cemetidine's out of stock. Now, there's a few pharmacies out there, a few gems that have just uh, got plenty of famotidine, which is good. So we're giving yes. that at the moment. But even that's pretty much going out of stock as well. Um, so predominantly at the moment, we're kind of using PPIs. Now, with these, they're pretty commonly prescribed and it's quite a common presentation to have within general practice. But what you want to be aware of is, well, we have disease, disease, uh, drug disease interactions, sorry. So for example, if we're giving somebody Gaviscon and they're mm -hmm. co continuously having Gaviscon all the time, but they've also got heart failure alongside it, it's probably not a good idea unless we're, in, unless we're ensuring that we're also monitoring their heart failure and how their symptoms are changing or exacerbating, provided that we can't give them a PPI. A PPI in that case would probably be a better choice, especially if the person's having recurrent symptoms. Now, if it was something like a PPI that we're thinking of giving is a meprazole, we need to think of the other medications the patient's taking just in general, but specifically with omeprazole. We know it has mm. interactions with clopidogrel and citalopram, so it wouldn't be appropriate to prescribe alongside them. And if you're working in community, general practice or hospital, these are the small quick things that you can pick on, pick up on because we, we all know the top 100 drugs are very, very important in terms of knowing the drug-drug interactions. We also, I also want to iterate to you guys that drug disease interactions are really important as well. Now, omeprazole is within the top 100 prescribed drugs and clopidogrel isn't, I believe, but it's quite commonly prescribed within within secondary prevention, isn't it? So it's something that we definitely mm -hmm. want to be aware of. Citalopram is also one of the medications. Um, usually if you're chatting to a patient and you know they're, they're not feeling too great and you want to prescribe something to help, to help them and aid their mood, you might uh, prescribe sertraline, but if that's not working, usually the second go-to that most clinicians tend to go to is citalopram. But something you want to be aware of is, well, are they also taking something for good? For example, I think a good uh, good thing to think about would be, well, if somebody's prescribed an SSRI, such as sertraline, and they said, oh, I've got stomach upsets one uh, a week after starting it, 
-hmm. And the GP said, okay, cool, we'll prescribe you um, omeprazole to take alongside it. Now there's no interactions there. But after four weeks, when they reviewed the sertraline, the patient said, actually, it's not really having any effect. And the doctor said, okay, or the clinician said, okay, let's switch it to um, citalopram. At that point, there would be an interaction and it may or may not be picked up in general practice. So if you're within community pharmacy, that would be an excellent intervention to make at that point. So just to summarize there, we've, spoke about dys we've spoken about dyspepsia. We've spoken about uh, the medications used to manage dyspepsia. Mm -hmm. We've spoken about the drug disease interactions. We've spoken about the uh, disease disease interactions. You also want to know about the side effects from the medications. So... Um, for example, which minerals would be decreased in general by PPIs and what would that increase the risk of? That's the second piece of homework from me. Um, so that's definitely something you want to know about. Now, moving on in terms of IBD, which is usually uh, summarized as ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Yeah. Well, we know patients are going to um, appear with a variety of symptoms. It's quite debilitating in terms of their life and you definitely want to go really into detail with these patients and the different things that can change their symptoms. Some patients often are recommended to make a symptom diary and that really is uh, covered within the NICE guidelines as opposed to the BNF, the level of details that you guys are really expected to have. Um, now patients can occur with, um, come through to your pharmacy with stomach cramps, swelling of the tummy, they could have blood in the diarrhea. Now that alone wouldn't be something that you'd want to manage within primary care. More likely than not, they'd already have a diagnosis of IBD and they'd already know the steps to take. But you definitely want to be aware of the lifestyle measures because ultimately within uh, from working within general practice, I've actually realized the level of difference that you can actually make in a community pharmacy sometimes is even more than in general practice because the amount of lifestyle interventions that you can make are really significant. Now, what you definitely want to know in terms of IBD specifically from the BNF, you want to know about the aminosalicylates, you want to know about oral steroids. You want to, when we think about oral steroids and aminosalicylates, you want to think of any monitoring that we want to be doing. We want to, when we're thinking of uh, oral steroids specifically, well, we're thinking of, well, how long is the course going to be for? Or do we need to taper down the course? And these are the general concepts that you guys want to be thinking of. Also, if somebody's been on um, oral steroids for a longer period of time, well, do they also need um, something for an osteoprotective effect? Because there is a, there's a decrease in bone mineral density when you're on long-term oral steroids. And what tests would we be done? Would we do sorry in regards to checking for bone mineral density? That's probably another thing that we want to be considering. So these are all the all the things, I suppose, all the gems that you want to try and extract from this chapter. That's brilliant. Thank you. You've got lots of pieces of homework from uh, Imran. We're not even halfway through yet. Um, but <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> what do you think, Imran? Are there um, trickier or more difficult aspects of this GR chapter to learn and to incorporate into practice? Right then, I think, Sana. With this chapter, it's actually it's relatively straightforward, but I think for that reason, people actually tend to miss it and skip certain sections. Now, the thing is, with this chapter, there's plenty of different avenues to go down. For example, you want to know this, the red flags for dyspepsia, constipation, diarrhea. At the end of the day, these are, these are probably some of the more common presentations that you're going to have. And if they're common in uh, practice they're going to be more common to come up in your exam as well so you want to know the red flags depending on where you are for example the red flags are different so if you're in a community setting and somebody comes in and says oh I've got blood in my stools it's the very first time it's happened it's um, slightly dark in color now you might refer that patient to general practice. Now, if you're in general practice, you might look into the patient's notes and see, actually this patient, they've had this before, uh, we, we, we checked them out, we did an endoscopy and everything seems fine at that point. 
it just seems to be a bit of a recurrence or they've had uh, you might be able to look into the notes you might see a discharge letter they recently had some surgery uh, within their bowels so therefore that might be something that's expected and it might be quite well documented there as well mm. which is a big advantage on discharge summaries for you Sana in case uh, in case <laughs> you're doing any or reviewing any it's really good when uh, you can see what procedures the patients had because they what might present we... with some sort of uh, side effect or some sort of long-term effect even after the surgery and sometimes it can be quite worrying if you are in general practice and you're not too sure actually is this what I refer again you can have a look at the letters and say actually no it's not we've got a management plan in place they'll mm -hmm. be seeing the gastro surgeon again in another two or three weeks just to, just a post-operative check and we'll take things from there now coming back to the uh, coming back to your question you need to learn the red flags and also within the G GI chapter is not actually seen much in hospital I believe now it is generally seen sometimes on the surgical ward when patients come in and they're constipated or even on other wards actually that you see patients when they've not got great mobility and mm -hmm. things you want to think consider at that point is well what is the most appropriate laxative we don't want anything that's too harsh on these patients as they've got decreased mobility so uh, letting a nurse know or other members of the team know at that point might be quite difficult if they just about find out oh I need to go immediately so you might not want to choose a suppository for these patients you might want to yeah. choose something that's a bit more a bit more gentle at that point now also this chapter is there's a bit of overlap between this and palliative care for the same reason in regards to um, constipation induced by opioids so what would be the select and the choice um, of uh, medication that you'd want to use for these patients that's another bit of homework from me, I guess. Um, <laughs> now with this chapter as well, I think uh, people, oft you don't often see these things, do you? I think in, in community pharmacy or even general practice, I think people tend to go online and they often buy things for um, obesity, for example, and they're getting things prescribed online by private clinics. It's uh, one of the common things that we used to prescribe when I was a superintendent as well. Now, for this reason, because you're not seeing it within your practice, it might be something you skip over, but you definitely want to know about BMI and when would somebody be considered overweight, when would somebody be considered severe, uh, severely obese or grossly obese even. Um, and you'd want to think, when can we start prescribing something like Olistat and what are the contraindications for something like this and what other things would we need to give, give alongside this? So, for example, we know Olistat, it causes, um, it can cause steatorrhea because the fat is leaving the body. Yeah. And now what else does it take with it? Well, we know some vitamins are fat soluble and which ones are is for you guys to find out, which is a, it's a very <laughs> quick 30 second Google, I think that one, what the fat soluble vitamins are. And that's something that you'd want to consider as well. And these are things that can come up in your exam. So it is something worthwhile and beneficial. So in terms of coming back to the question as a whole, it's relatively straightforward. What can be trickier is being aware of all the different types of red flags. And what also can be trickier is knowing what medications to prescribe when. That's brilliant. And did you hear what I said, guys? I've been saying it for the last millions of weeks. I know it looks easy, but don't skip it. So... That's our uh, segment on the GI chapter done. We'll uh, move on to the respiratory chapter, if that's okay. Um, first of all, something on primary care. Inhaler technique, it's one of the most important skills we educate patients on in primary care. Do you personally have a method that's worked best? And can you share it with our listeners if you do? So, yeah, I mean, I mentioned earlier, actually, that one of the predominant pieces of work that I do is asthma reviews at the moment. We're currently doing these over the phone. And I think um, it, it's, if you're actually in community pharmacy, you're probably at an edge with this question. Uh, the best thing that you actually can do is ask a patient to show you. And you yeah. want to be able to demonstrate it to the patient. But you're not going to use an inhaler with medication. Uh, if you don't obviously if you're not being prescribed it yourself so the best thing that you actually can do is ring up the company that produces the inhaler and ask them for some dummy devices more likely than not you'll probably have them within in your pharmacy within a couple of weeks oh, and cool. they, they yeah, yeah it's actually it's actually really good because if you can demonstrate to the patient this is actually how you're using the inhaler and you can show them with a dummy device or you can even get them to use a dummy device you don't want somebody to be taking uh 
uh, <laughs> extra doses of their relvadilipter, for example, or their beclometazone if they don't really need to. So yeah, it's really, I think I personally found that really effective in the current climate. Uh, so that's under normal circumstances. I check the inhaler technique. I show them correct technique. And we'll try and improve their technique if we can, um, which usually we can improve technique because most people tend to unfortunately forget how to use inhalers correctly, regardless of how long they've had asthma. You often get people that say, oh, I've had asthma for 40 years and I know how to use my inhalers properly. You'll check the technique, but unfortunately it's not quite correct. It, it will work, but it's just not optimal. So the whole point is to optimize inhaler technique. Um, now, under the current climate, what I'll tend to do is I'll get patients to describe how they'd be using their inhalers. And often from there, we can try and discern if they're using them correctly or not. Are they breathing in too quickly? Are they breathing in slowly? Is that appropriate? Is it not appropriate? Uh, one thing I generally tend to prescribe a lot more of at the moment is spacer devices uh, yes. with pressurized meter dose inhalers. They, they should be prescribed all the time anyway, but most patients, they find them a bit cumbersome and they can be quite large. Um, so they choose not really to use them. But for the patients that have got poor asthma control, instead of stepping up treatment, I'll tend to give them a spacer device. And I'll usually always say, if you are going to the community pharmacy to pick up your own medication, do stop and ask the community pharmacy team uh, to show you how to actually use your inhalers properly. Now, another thing would be to direct patients to Asthma UK, absolute fantastic resource. It shows you how to use every type of inhaler device shows you how to use them with spacers as well if you're using one uh, that's usually a very very good resource and a good resource for pre-regs as well actually um, if you're not too sure how to use any of the inhalers or what the correct technique is you can usually just watch a video for a couple of minutes before you actually go and do a consultation with the patient so a good opportunity would be is if you've taken in a prescription you've gone to the back of the pharmacy and you've realized actually this is a new inhaler the patient's not had it before it's a good opportunity to sign up the patient for an NMS service. Uh, I'm sure your pharmacist will absolutely love you if you mention that. <laughs> and another thing would be if you just, whilst the prescription is getting compiled or after it's been compiled, just quickly watch a few minute video, seeing the inhaler technique. And what, I'll always, what I always did when I was in community pharmacy was I used to always pull out the massive uh, patient information leaflets that come with these inhalers and it's got usually it's got diagrams on there as well yeah. and as I'm trying to demonstrate inhaler technique I'm always pointing to the diagrams because the patient might not remember what I did but hopefully they'll remember when they are able to look at the patient information leaflet they'll be able to look at the diagrams and they'll be thinking oh yes he did this at that point then he did that and I can see that in the picture as well so I'll do that. So I think the best the best thing that you can do as a pre-reg, I think, is just really, really getting stuck in and just practicing with your patients. That's so interesting. Interesting. And it's also interesting that you mentioned spaces because I've not mentioned a lot. I remember on our surgical ward as well, one patient struggling so much after her surgery. She was wheezing the whole time. She thought it was normal to wheeze. So I understand what you mean by people oh, think gosh. that they've had it for 40 years and they're supposed to be suffering all the time. And she'd never even heard of a spacer. So um, exactly. we started I mean, that on discharge. So yeah, you, that's really interesting. You'll be shocked. I mean, um, we had a, uh, I've seen some clinic letters in the past from consultants. And a patient was actually, he was on, uh, you know, like step three or step four. And then he was referred to a consultant as well. What the consultant actually just did was he actually just gave the patient a spacer device and was able to reduce him all the way back down to step two. Oh my goodness. Which is which is just literally a Sabad inhaler when required. And even then he was using it maybe once a month, if that, and that was if he was going to the gym. And the beclometazone, I think he just literally just had the Cuba 100 tuples twice a day. And from being on Foster, Max Dose, being on Monte Lucas as well. Oh and gosh. then I think he was on Spireva before he even got to the consultant. So the effect of a spacer uh, can have that much of an impact. Now, the, the effectiveness of inhaler technique just goes to show you how important it is to be using your inhalers properly because it is possible to use PMDIs correctly without a spacer, but yes. most people do tend to forget, unfortunately. So by using a spacer, you take that uh, human element out somewhat. Right, do you have... Um... Any recommendations to our listeners to remember the differences in pathophysiology, so how the diseases actually work, and the drugs for COPD and asthma? Because they're somewhat the same, but there are sort of nuances, aren't there, between the two? 
Yep, there's definitely slight variations. I mean, we'll just pick on your first point in regards to the pathophysiology. I'm personally a massive advocate of knowing the underlying yes. reason for diseases and medications and how things work. Now, we've got a respiratory study day actually coming up in late October where we'll definitely be going through things in a lot more detail. But just to touch on things for now, um, you want to be aware of things like who do we typically diagnose with each of these conditions? And what are the predisposing risk factors? I mean, is a patient usually diagnosed with COPD young or is it old? Is, it, is somebody with asthma, are they young or are they usually old? What are the risk factors for these conditions? I mean, what are the variable risk factors? I mean, if your parents had COPD, does it mean that you'll get COPD? Or similarly with asthma, or how about uh, lifestyle choices? So if you're a smoker, and are you more likely to develop COPD or asthma? Mm. Which one of them conditions is it? And how many would you have to be smoking for roughly how long to be uh, diagnosed with COPD or asthma? So these are the kind of things you want to be thinking of. And in regards to the medications uh, to treat these conditions, I mean, I think your example was absolutely fantastic of the Thank patient you. on the surgical ward uh, that was wheezing um, and she was an asthmatic and she just thought, this is, well, I'm asthmatic, so I'm going to be, it's, yeah. it is just what it is. That's how it's going to be. I mean, or so you can get patients to think, I'm using my blue inhaler four times a day, but that's fine because I'm asthmatic and that's just how things are going to mm. be. So patient education is incredibly important. So this comes back to the example that we gave in the previous question um, of the NMS service. You want to be able to educate people on how to use the inhalers, but you also want to be able to educate them on their diseases and when to be able to tell if their disease control is poor or when their disease control is good. Um, you also, uh, one thing you want to know in terms of asthma specifically is how do you define good control? How do you define poor control? And when would you step up treatment for asthma? I mean, we also need to be aware of, for, ex uh, for example, in step one of asthma, we all know it's usually a blue inhaler all by itself. And we might step up treatment when the patient's using it twice or more and in a week, or if they, think they, they say, my asthma is actually getting disturbed by my sleep. So yeah. we'll step them up to a brown inhaler usually or a or an inhaled corticosteroid. But one thing we need to be aware of is, well, what is the dose of the inhaled corticosteroid? Is it, um, is it 400 micrograms twice a day? And if it is, is that a high dose? Is that a low dose? Is that a medium dose? Because what the guidelines will tell you within the BNF is, it'll say, this is a, you can use in step two, it's a low to medium dose. But what is that? Does that mean, uh, does that mean the clenial 100 microgram inhaler, two puffs in the morning, two puffs in the evening. Is it a clenial 200? Is that is that a high dose? Is that a low dose? Now, these are the kind of things you want to be aware of. And in regards to COPD, um, you want to be you want to be aware of the same kind of things. To be fair with you, you want to be you want to know when would you step up or step down management or treatment. You want to be aware of the general lifestyle advice that you'd give around these conditions as well. So hopefully that gave you a bit of an overview and it pushed you probably to sign up to the uh, study day as well, where we'll talk things, I'll, I'll personally be delivering in that session, I'll be talking through things in a lot more detail, hopefully. A bit of a weird section on the respiratory chapter is about oxygen prescribing. And I know not even just pre-regis, but pharmacists, doctors, nurses, we all just struggle a little bit with this. Um, do you have any tips for our listeners on how to understand oxygen and its prescribing requirements? Yeah, now, the thing is with oxygen, it's, it's a quite a niche topic yes. within within uh, general practice. Very niche, I would say. It's a very, very few patients that are prescribed oxygen. Uh, what is usually through a hoof request form, uh, which isn't important for the pre-reg exam specifically. But the key things that are important is what you guys need to know. Oxygen is a medicine. It's mm -hmm. very, very commonly used in medical emergencies. It's one of the most common drugs actually used within medical emergencies. Um, so if you're in hospital, you're at a bit of an advantage here. You'll see it being prescribed a lot more commonly than anybody would do in community. Um, it's usually in community, if it's long-term oxygen therapy uh, for whatever reason, if this patient's having it prescribed, well, the, we know um, oxygen, if it's a fuel for fire, isn't it? There's a massive risk 
when it comes to using oxygen and uh, combustion is very combustible. So therefore, we'll often implore people to actually quit smoking before they prescribed even oxygen. And sometimes we'll even um, hold it off until they actually quit smoking, especially if they're saying, yes, I'm considering quitting smoking. I'm wanting to quit immediately so I can get this oxygen that's going to help improve my quality of life so these are that's generally the main factors that we tend to think about in regards to oxygen prescribing so the prerequisite of uh, quitting smoking is sometimes there before you actually can prescribe oxygen because the main thing is you want to be able to do things in a safe manner now mm. just in, just in regards to things being flammable and combustible there is something else as well and there was a recent mhra alert that everybody should be aware of um, in regards to things catching fire and if you're not already aware of it, you can ask ask me in my Telegram, ask me in the Primary HD Telegram group, and I'll I'll definitely let you know there. But that's these are the kind of things and the factors you want to be thinking about when you're prescribing oxygen. Sometimes actually patients even have a home assessment done before mm. they'll be prescribed oxygen, just to ensure they don't have too many open flames or when they're going to be using their oxygen because that can also be a risk factor. Thank you so much. Yeah, oxygen is it's a big deal for me only because when I was a pre-reg, the NHS had a big focus on it. So I was quite lucky in that I was went through like three different focus weeks on oxygen. So you're right, it's really, really niche um, for primary care. But if you are in hospital, try and not only get involved in oxygen prescribing on your placements, but then share it with your colleagues in the other sectors because... A million heads are better than one and it just makes it easier for everybody. Let's move on to hay fever. It's a huge topic because there's so many types of rhinitis if you look at the nice UKS, but it's something that pharmacists in all sectors see. What are the best tips that you can give our listeners for dealing with patients who do present with hay fever or associated symptoms? Yeah, certainly. I mean, Absolutely fantastic. I've loved the fact that this question has actually come up because, um, yeah, actually from working within, uh, this is another thing, actually, I felt like the amount of impact that you can have. This is a question, actually, it does cover in all sectors. But one thing is um, in regards to hay fever specifically, a lot of the management can actually be done over the counter. First Mm -hmm. line, second line, third line, um, a lot of the treatments are actually available. And the mainstay of actually treatment in regards to hay fever is avoidance of triggers. But as our summers are getting warmer, pollen counts are increasing, it does become very, very difficult. So the main thing is just to trying to, in regards to saying to patients, well, just avoid your triggers, stay inside. But it's very difficult to do that as a patient and the effect that it has on your quality of life. When, for example, the rest of the family might be going out and you're the one alone staying in and saying, well, I can't go out because my hay fever is really bad. So that's something that you want to consider. Consider the patient's quality of life when you're prescribing medications or when you're suggesting them to purchase medications um, instead of saying well just avoid your triggers say these are your triggers how many of them are feasibly avoidable how many of them do you think you could get rid of Um, so for example if somebody's uh, allergy type symptoms are being triggered off by pets and their friends got a pet well you could always recommend if when you go over to your friend's house could you suggest maybe the pets in the other room for a couple of hours beforehand so hopefully it's dander and particles are not in the air when you go there so you won't have any adverse reactions mm. now coming back to the medications actually that can be prescribed for hay fever you want to you want to be able to tell patients how long um, these are going to take to work because if you tell somebody um I mean, I've had a patients in general practice, they said, oh, I've tried the Sudafred uh, nasal spray. Really, really good. Absolutely fantastic for my hay fever. My nose stops running immediately. And, um, you know, previously you've suggested to them maybe to purchase an over-the-counter steroid and they've only used it uh, for a day or two. And they said, well, that's had no effect. So I'm going to throw in the bin. Yeah. We, we all already know it's going it to, it might take about four or five days to start working, a couple of weeks to get the full effect of that. Mm. And the thing is only by educating patients um, in regards to how long medications will take to work, can you actually, um, can you actually make an impact in regards to hay fever? And it can be quite uh, debilitating um, 
uh, illness to be honest with you because if if you, you can just imagine can't you really if if you're the only one that can't really participate in an activity and your social group is doing that activity it, you know often can get you down but there is a lot of different treatments that are available and a vast majority of them to be honest with you are over the counter so this is a good condition as a pre-reg um, in the current climate that you want to really have a good handle on and it's something that you could quite comfortably manage over the counter. That is excellent. Like I said in the last couple of weeks, we've got to honour the medicines that we're talking about. Just because something's not prescribed by a consultant or a GP, it doesn't mean that it's not effective. All of the guidelines, they're fully evidence-based. Everything has a huge like, timeline of evidence that underlies it. So even though you're prescribed, you're recommending something like a cetirizine tablet that you can get over the counter for 30p or something just because it's cheap <laughs> and just because it's readily available it doesn't mean it doesn't work like aspirin is at what 50p for 28 tablets or something and they prevent secondary it's like a secondary prevention for heart attacks yeah precisely so, precisely you know, we just got to honor the stuff that we're recommending over the counter as well and give it that level of importance that we give like poms yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think sometimes uh, we don't appreciate the fact that when we're selling medications over the counter, we're actually prescribing them. So there's, there's a lot Ooh, of different that's factors. that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, you're actually prescribing them. So don't, don't let a patient think or don't let even get, let yourself get into that mindset, oh, it's available over the counter, it's not that effective. Mm. When, it comes, when it comes to all medications, provided that we're following the guidelines, like Sana said, it's all evidence-based, okay? It's, everything is evidence-based. So give give respect to that medication. Don't, let, don't, don't think to yourself, oh, it's only satirazine. What effect is this going to have? Let me start this patient off on um, straight away we'll just give him a, a nasal steroid we'll give him some eye drops as well we'll throw the whole shop at him yeah we'll basically yeah it's, it's not about that because you don't know the patient's symptoms might be really bad but they might just take one satirity tablet and they'll absolutely be fine it's the yeah. same thing with asthma to be fair with you um you might think oh gosh this patient's on a on a uh, on a just they're just on a blue inhaler and they seem to be using it uh maybe three or four times a week so therefore i'm going to step up the management and I'm going to give them, I'm going to go straight to step three. But you don't go to step three. You need to go through step two because they might take a low dose inhaled corticosteroid. When you speak to them again after maybe four to six weeks or so, they say, actually, I've not even needed my blue inhaler. Used it a couple of times uh, when I started using my brown inhaler. But after about two or three weeks or so, I've not even touched it. So you don't know the level, uh, what uh, step severity you might need to go down or how far down the guidelines you might need to go with each patient. You've got to treat each patient individually and prescribe and recommend medications accordingly. Always start off on step one. Um, Self-care is incredibly important throughout all steps. That's mm -hmm. another thing that you guys should always bear in mind. Now to round off, is there a best piece of advice you could give our listeners today? It doesn't have to relate to those two topics. Ah, right. Okay, cool. Um, well, I think learn what is common first and what you're going to put into practice because by the time you come towards your exam, you won't even need to revise the topics at all. You'll already know it off the back of your hand. Um, specifically, I mean, one thing that's really, really good to learn about right now would be stop smoking because Stoptober is literally just around the corner. Mm. Uh, the winter season is just around the corner as well. Learn, learn about um, coughs and colds and how we treat these over the counter. These are going to be things that are more common at the moment. So learn things that you can immediately, when you think somebody's all it's because somebody's going to come through the door with this because when it comes around to November, December time, you're pretty much guaranteed that you're going to be selling one bottle of Benelin a day yes. yourself. So you want to know why are you recommending that? What is the evidence evidence base behind that as well? And things that are not so common, but important, you want to be aware of them as well. So coming back to today's conversation, we've not mentioned it already, but the the theophylline. I mean, oh, what yes. symptoms would you guys want to be aware of if you were suspecting theophylline toxicity? Now, that's obviously something that's not common. How often do you in community pharmacy dispense theophylline? How often do you even see it in primary care or even secondary care? Maybe if you're working on a respiratory ward, you'll see it, but even then you probably don't see it that much. So you want to be aware of common things that you can go using to practice straight away because you'll know them straight away and you'll be fine before your exam. You won't even need to revise it, hopefully. 
but the things that are not so common but rare but suggestive of something that can be quite sinister underlying such as theophylline toxicity methotrexate toxicity all the high-risk drugs that's something you want to be aware of NSAIDs where, when would we be worried about patients taking NSAIDs over a long period of time? What symptoms would they be presenting with? It's not going to happen very often, but when it does happen, and it, when it does come, come up in your exam, you want to be able to answer that question like no problem. That is brilliant. That's such good piece of advice. I wish I had that, what, four years ago? But yeah, <laughs> the toxicity, I've only seen one patient... And I was a pre-regenerative respiratory ward and I had no idea that I could get that bad. She, I don't even think she had like an overdose or anything. I think um, she had like one extra tablet a day or something by accident or she yeah. got really dehydrated and it was unbelievable the effect that it had on her. Exactly, exactly. So that just goes to show, I mean, the, the whole reason, um, just coming back to the other medications that I mentioned, the methotrexate and the NSAIDs, there's a reason why the, the GPHC have said these are high risk medications. Mm -hmm. So you need to know everything pretty much about them because they won't, it's not going to be common. It's not going to be common that, you know, every single patient that walks through no. the door, you're suspecting of a GI bleed because they took an NSAID for two months uh, because of some lower back pain or something. Mm. It's not going to be the case. But when that does happen, you guys need to be aware of it. And might I add, I love pharmacy and everything, but, you know, most of the common topics, they can feel a bit routine sometimes. So these high high risk things that um, Imran's talking about, they get you really refreshed sort of intellectually. They're, they're really interesting to, deep, to dive deep into. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's this, I mean, this is why we signed up to the degree, to be honest with you, Basically. to learn the deep dive, to learn the knowledge. Um, I personally love to know the background behind diseases and medications. So, yeah, this is the part that's interesting. Sometimes, unfortunately, you know, it might feel a bit mundane learning about um, hay fever or learning about the first few steps of management of, you know, quite common conditions. Mm. But the thing is, that's also part of your job because that's, to be honest with you, that's the bread and butter really, isn't it? Yes. That's what's going to come up. 80% of the time, 90% of the time, probably even 99% of the time. How yes. many patients in your career are you even going to suspect of a GI bleed with NSAIDs? It's probably going to be a handful. And mm -hmm. of them, one might actually get diagnosed. I mean, my, t my time of working within uh, general practice, there's probably been a handful of patients that have, um, uh, that have suggested from their history that you they could be suffering with Claudia Aquinas syndrome, which is very rare. Wow. But out of them, I think two of them actually did have Claudia Aquinas syndrome and they did need to be seen very, very urgently. So you do need to have an awareness of it. That's extremely interesting. And thank you so much for all of your advice and all your information today, Imran. It's been brilliant speaking to you. Oh, no problem. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I've actually really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much. And like Imran said, guys, please do join, um, register for the respiratory masterclass. Uh, I'll put the link in, to the Eventbrite site in the description. And not only respiratory, but there's a whole host of different things that you can sign up for. Thanks, Imran. No worries, no worries. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, guys. Uh, really look forward to hopefully hearing from you guys. If you're in our Telegram groups, feel free to pop up and say hi. I'm quite friendly. And that's it for today guys thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of primary healthcare developments pre-reg pharmacy podcast as promised please find the eventbrite link in the description and do follow us on instagram twitter and join our telegram group all of which are extremely useful all in their different ways speak to you next week bye <laughs>